Ever since the COVID-19 pandemic made headlines in early 2020 and pretty much turned all of our lives upside down, the focus has been on the development of vaccines to protect the world against the virus. There's been a real interest in how biopharmaceutical industry really works. I set out to find a woman in a leadership role who works in this industry. And thanks to some pretty powerful connections right here in Boston, I found her. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. In the spotlight, Carla McDonald. She's the Vice President, Communications and Patient Advocacy at Ipsen Pharmaceuticals. With 20 years of experience in the industry, I knew she would have insights into how clinical trials work, why patient advocacy matters, and how the scientific community has responded internally to all the pressure and all the attention around the development of a vaccine. I also wondered how much progress women have made in what I've always viewed as a very male-dominated industry. I started out by asking Carla to explain what her job entails and then to tell us about the company she works for, Ipsen Pharmaceuticals. It's a French company that's been around for over 90 years, so it's had a really long tradition, but it's actually a global organization as well. And I was brought on a little over two years ago to help them open up and expand their North American presence. So within the United States and Canada, I lead two functions. One is communications or corporate communications, and the other is patient advocacy. And so corporate communications is really how you help to tell the corporate story. So that could be everything from your leadership's visibility to issuing press releases to social media and websites, and just really making sure that people understand the breadth of what the company and our employees do every single day. So that's half of it. And then uh, the other half is called patient advocacy. And within our industry, it's absolutely critical that we understand the experiences that patients and caregivers have so that as we're developing new medicines and treatments, we have an opportunity to include their perspective and really understand what their needs are so that as we're developing products or medicines, we're really helping to respond to real needs. How has the advocacy function changed in the past 20 years or so? So there's been a tremendous amount of shift in terms of our understanding. If we think back to the early HIV AIDS crisis, we had a situation where there was this horrific, horrific disease impacting people very rapidly and very severely. People were dying and dying quickly. And it was a population of folks who weren't comfortable and their caregivers and advocates weren't comfortable just waiting for a drug to get developed and waiting for what was probably a much slower and traditional development timeline. And so patients mobilized, they got together, and it wasn't just patients, it was physicians, it was caregivers, and demanded better. And that was, in my mind, the beginning of the modern patient advocacy movement. And since then, companies and uh, the government has evolved to put in processes to actually invite patients and caregivers into parts of the decision-making process so that we're hearing patients from the very beginning and as drugs are being developed, going through the regulatory process as well, patients have an opportunity to inform those outcomes and explain how they're experiencing their condition or disease and what they feel they need in order to get the support to overcome it 
or to lead a healthier or more productive or more active lives. Carla, do you think that there's also been, in the last 20 years, uh, a shift in mindset? You know, I think gone are the days where your doctor tells you to take a drug and you just say, okay, I will. Now it's like, wait a minute, why should I take it? What are the side effects? I mean, do you agree with me on mindset? 100%. It's, it's the access to information. I think people today are so much more empowered. There was a period of time where a doctor would say, do X. And of course you would listen because you did not have access to information or you probably weren't empowered or understand the industry or the profession. Today, when a doctor says S, actually, you've probably Googled it. So even before your physician has said X, you already have several ideas of what you believe your treatment plan should be. And then when the doctor does present a plan, you're probably going to challenge it. You're going to question it. Uh, not everybody does. And I, and I think that's a piece of the puzzle too, making sure that we're empowering all patients, not just those who are the most privileged to be able to understand what their rights are and what their opportunities are to access healthcare as well. A lot of patient advocacy is powered by moms and that does not surprise me at all. You're smiling. Yeah, Dr. Mom. Well, it's amazing because if you think of the experience of women, we are the caregivers. We are the ones who raise our children, not exclusively, but traditionally. That means we're the ones who are taking our children to their well baby visits. We're booking their healthy kid appointments and all their vaccinations. We're also, when we are pregnant, for those of us who have kids, we're actually taught that it's quite common to go to the doctor with a certain degree of cadence or a regular cadence. So we're much more comfortable in the system. And then as our families get older, we're also the caregivers of our elderly, right? So it's the, it's the mom or the daughter who's often, or the daughter-in-law who's often the primary support person for an aging parent as well. So even though we don't, and traditionally haven't had maybe institutional power within the industry, we've always had the home power. We're defining the future of healthcare and we're not doing it based on wishes. <laughs> we're doing this on both academic experience and a tremendous amount of real world experience. I've always been fascinated by clinical trials and how they work because I know it's a long process. Mm -hmm. Can you paint us a picture, teach us, how long does it typically take for a drug to come to market? It can take about 10 years for a drug to come to market, but not all innovations or inventions make it to being a drug. There's a tremendous amount of failure in the industry, and there's a tremendous amount of failure in science. In fact, that's what science is about. It's about learning more about a topic and progressing the body of knowledge and the amount of information that we have. The first part of the clinical trial process is to determine if the drug has the, is, is going to be safe, because obviously we don't want to do anything if we put the patient at risk. And so we usually start with a, a smaller trial, usually healthy patients, and we're looking to see the safety of the drug. Then as we progress, we move into larger trials. Typically, those larger trials are of people with the condition. And then we're looking, we're obviously tracking safety, but then we're trying to determine what's the right dose and whether or not it's going to work. And those trials could last anywhere from, you know, we've seen expedited reviews, certainly with vaccines of late, but they could last several years as well. And all the long, you're working with the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States to make sure that the drug is progressing appropriately. So it's continuing to look safe, and you're actually starting to see early signs of efficacy, or we're starting to see early signs that the drug may work. And so once we feel confident, we've now presented data, the data has been peer reviewed, 
Our goal is then to apply with the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States to see if we can be granted approval. And if we are, that drug will be made available through physicians to appropriate patients. Once the drug is on the market and thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of people might be taking it, we're actually continuing to track the drug, one, to make sure we're not seeing any safety side effects that weren't anticipated, and two, we're tracking it to make sure that it continues to demonstrate efficacy or show that it's working within those patients that we think it will work with. And I'm also thinking that that's where the role of patient advocacy comes in as well, because we want to know how people feel about the experience of taking this particular drug. Absolutely. Our doctors or our healthcare providers can suggest that we do things, but if we don't have the support, the time, the ability, the resources to follow it through, then it's not going to benefit us. So increasingly, we're looking at what we call the whole patient or the whole experience. Do they live in a safe home? Do they have the right nutrition? Do they have access? So can you get to a hospital follow-up visit? Do you have a car? Do you have a safe way to get there? Can you get time off work? Is your dosing or the regimen that you've been prescribed by a physician, is it something that you can manage on your own? Do you need support to do that? Often the, the word we use for this is adherence, right? The ability to follow through on the guidelines or the plan that you set forth with your doctor. You had mentioned the vaccine a minute ago. The eyes of the world have been on the pharmaceutical industry since COVID, as we have watched the vaccine developed at kind of warp speed. Do you think this has been an opportunity for the world to see your industry in a different way? I work in an industry that is made up of extremely brilliant, extremely passionate people. And most of us are in this industry because we're excited about science and we're really passionate about the potential of what science can deliver. And if you look at vaccines, many people will say that vaccines are the biggest health benefit that was ever invented. And if you look back at the, you know, the last hundred years of vaccines and what's been accomplished in terms of our quality of life and our lifespan, and a lot of these diseases that really had a horrific impact on our parents' generation and our grandparents' generation, we've been spared of. So when our children are born, we expect that they will be healthy and that they will grow to a, you know, a ripe old age and live a really full life. And, and in my opinion, vaccines are a huge part of that. Let's go back to your childhood. You are Canadian. Tell us a little bit about your family. Do you have brothers, sisters? What did your parents do for a living? I actually grew up in an amazing family. Mom, dad, two brothers, both older. We would sit around the kitchen table in the evening, and often my dad would talk about his day at the office. And he worked in industry. He worked in the pharmaceutical sector in Canada. And he would tell us these unbelievable stories of these scientists, and he wasn't a scientist, who he got to interact with during the day. And so I think for many kids, you sort of grew up maybe with a, you know, a hero who was a rock star or a sports celebrity or something. For me, the heroes were scientists, and they weren't just the scientists that you heard about once a year when the Nobel Prizes were awarded. For me, the scientists that were heroes were just those folks who went to work every day and who challenged the status quo and thought about what could be possible. What was the message in your house about values, about what matters most? I think in many ways, I'm an extremely progressive, old-fashioned woman. <laughs> That's a great title. Yeah. I love that. Uh, my parents come from a small community in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. My father comes from a coal mining community, and my mom comes from a lobster fishing community. And they were both raised that everything is based on your community. You are an integral part of it. 
and we all succeed together. And so family was extremely important growing up. I grew up in sort of suburban Montreal, but we would spend two months every summer in a very rural fishing village in Nova Scotia. And you would learn the art of visiting. So even at an early age, and it's kind of funny because it was so regular to me growing up, and it's something that I've taught my kids, but you would visit, you would go to somebody's house. Of course, the door would never be locked. There would always be tea in the kitchen and you would sit in the kitchen and you would sit. And as a child, you would listen to someone share their story. And it was just an amazing part of growing up. And you would also learn skills and trades. So you might learn how to gut a mackerel or you might learn how to clean lobster or fix a net or bake bonnet or bread. Um, or crochet or knit. So you never knew what your, your sort of how your day would unfold. But there was this whole community that was out there and had ownership of you and was there to help you succeed. These remarkable women. So my great aunt Mid was a switchboard operator and a Morse code reader. And so when I was a kid, you'd be up at Aunt Mid's and you could actually work the switchboard with her. For those of you of a younger generation... <laughs> In the way olden days, we had a switchboard. Um, Let's go into the Wayback Machine, Carla. <laughs> before your cell phone and before your uh, push button phone and before your dial phone, you had a phone that had kind of this crank on the side and you would crank it one or two, three times and you would have an earphone and someone would come on the other line and say, number, please. And you'd give them a number and they would plug in some wires and hopefully you would connect with the person who you were trying to call. I would imagine that by watching women like that and having them be part of your life, your family network, kind of empowered you as a young girl watching that. I think it did. And I think I grew up in a household where you were not just encouraged to do anything you wanted to do, but I think there was an expectation that you would. And my parents always pushed me and my brothers to do more and more. You attended McGill, great school, hard to get into. So in Canada, universities are public schools. So even the ones that you might have heard about, like McGill, Dalhousie, U of T, University of Toronto, University of British Columbia, Queens, they're all public schools. And so they're relatively, first of all, affordable because they're publicly funded. But the other piece is, is we tend to just go to a school that's kind of close by. So while I wish I had some really grandiose story about how I got into McGill, it was just the local school that I applied to. But it was an amazing university, and my son is away at school now, and my, my daughter will be going to college or university next year. A bachelor's degree is so important, and for me, it's not the academics that are important about your bachelor's degree. For kids who are lucky enough to go to school or are interested in going to school, it's often the first time they're living away from home. When you go away to university, it's the first time in your life where you're actually starting to interact or experience the world on your terms, independent of your family. And hopefully when you're going away to university, you're meeting a lot of people who are very different than you and are really challenging who you are, how you view the world and what you want to experience. So I always say your bachelor degree, and I think everybody should go to school for a degree for this particular reason, is really when you first start to shake the tree and figure out your place in the world. Tell me how you ended up in Boston. When I was at university, I was in student politics, which I loved. And I think student politics in many ways is one of the ways I first started to find my voice. It involved a lot of public speaking, which is something that I wasn't super keen on going into it. I was a bit of an introvert. Even after I graduated, I stayed in touch with people I had gone to university with. And so my husband went to McGill from Rhode Island, 
So he's American. So you followed a boy to Boston. So that is not the narrative I choose to tell. <laughs> we were going to live in Montreal and uh, had been living together. And I had actually only lived in Montreal my adult life. And so we looked at either moving to Boston or moving to Toronto. And we kind of flipped a coin and ended up coming to Boston. While he had spent many years getting to know my family in Montreal, it gave me an opportunity to really meet his family and get to know them better. And of course, Boston is just one of those amazing cities where you, you know, the two-year plan, which was, you know, pop into Boston, check it out for a while, then go home, became too compelling. And we got jobs here. We bought a house. We eventually had kids and, and just love it. It's an amazing city. And it's not too far from Canada. So I can jump in a car and in five, six hours, I can be home. And for someone who wants to have a career in biotech, I've learned that Boston is the NASA of biotech. So you were in exactly the right place. Let's talk about women on the rise in pharma, in biotech. Mm -hmm. You've been a part of this landscape for 20 years. Carla, how have things evolved and changed for women in life sciences? There's been some amazing change, but not enough. I think I started this conversation talking about understanding our patient's journey. <laughs> I think we have to understand our own journey as well. There's always been challenges for women in academia, and those challenges will tend to continue into industry and into government. And so while we made some amazing progress, there's certainly more progress to do. But I think one of the challenges of the last two years in addition to the pandemic, is we've really been confronted with a lot of our past views on how we look at listening and learning and bringing diverse voices to the table. And I think that's with our black and brown communities. I think it's certainly with women. I think we're learning. I think we're getting better. I think we've got a lot to do. And I think it's up to all of us to make changes. When we went remote about a year and a half ago with COVID, it was an interesting experience. We've talked a lot about how do you create an environment where people can bring their whole selves to work? Like, and we would put that in quotes. And we all thought a lot about that. What does that mean? And how do you get folks to do that? Well, you know, the pandemic actually has forced us to do that. Because if you had looked at me working from home five years ago, well, first of all, I would never turn the video on. And if for some reason I was in a meeting and the doorbell rang or the dog barked, I'd be mortified because there would be the sense of having been exposed, right? Oh, Carla's working from home. Like, what's she doing at home? And, and how is she not giving her full self to the job? Whereas today we're on Zoom. I don't think very many people put a whole lot of thought into hair, outfit, whatnot. I most often seen in a uh, t-shirt, perhaps jeans. I usually have socks on, not always, and a fleece. And our cameras are on. So if a dog comes into the office or my kids need something or the doorbell rings, that's just part of the day. And so I'm hoping that our whole selves have come to the office more. And as a result of that, as employers and managers, we've gotten more comfortable with it. So if we want people to bring their whole selves to work, we have to be ready for what that means. And that doesn't mean sitting passively and guessing. It means actively listening, learning, and creating change. Speaking of the real world, I wonder if I can ask you a little bit about your family and being a mom. How did being a mother change you? I didn't think I ever wanted kids. I actually didn't even know if I was going to get married. I just wanted to have a career. Like I thought I had visions of a city, a really nice condo, a really cool job. But anyway, life has surprises, which is the fantastic thing. So my husband is just remarkable and my, obviously my best friend. And we have two 
unbelievable, inspiring kids. And I hope all moms get a chance to say that because I think in our eyes, our kids are fabulous. I think when I became a mom, a couple of things have happened. I, I think I became a more productive worker because if you are going to the office in the day, and know that when you come home at night, you've got a full schedule of, you know, when they were little, it's bath, dinner, bedtime stories and whatnot. You don't want to miss out on that. So, you know, I always say, if you need something done, you know, you, you give it to a busy person. <laughs> if you need something done fast, you give it to a mom because boy, are we good at juggling. The other part is it made me better at my job in, in terms of being more attentive and listening to the patient experience, right? Because as, as a mom, I'm also someone who's managing family members who also have health conditions and chronic disease. And so I'm not just a, a worker in this industry or a leader in this industry. I'm a patient myself. I'm a caretaker myself. And so when I have an experience at the office where I'm making a choice, I'm not just making it as a professional, I'm making it as, as a mom as well. And, and I think that hopefully is making me better at my job too. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? Well, it depends on the obstacle. Sometimes I go right through it, but sometimes I work around it. I like to bring others on a journey with me, but at a certain point, I also am impatient and I need a decision to be made. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten in your life? And this can be something personal or professional. Can you pass that along to our audience today? One of the best pieces of advice I got was to look around and find people that you want to be like or you want to learn from and make sure that as much as possible as you're routing your day, there are opportunities for you to raise your hand and get attached to them in a meeting or on a project so that they see who you are and they see what you can do. One of the things my dad used to tell us, my brothers and I, when we were in school, is he used to always say, sit in the front of the class and make sure the professor knows your name. And it sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like very old school advice, but it's true. Teachers want to teach students who at least appear to be interested in what they're teaching. Teachers have gone to school for a remarkable amount of time and bring a tremendous amount of passion to their classes every day. And they want to see those lights go off in kids, those little light bulbs. And if you can demonstrate and show the teacher that you have some level of enthusiasm about what they're teaching, and hopefully it's genuine and true, then they're going to give you some extra attention and they're going to help you along your way. Final question. And Carla McDonald, I want to say thank you so much for coming here and joining me in my living room to answer these questions. What does success mean to you? For me, success is doing something every day that I love where I'm always learning. But I'm also fortunate enough to be able to cover my rent and I have healthy kids and a healthy family and I'm healthy myself. So within that context, it's the privilege of being able to go to work somewhere every day where my contributions are valued, where I'm learning every day, and hopefully I'm taking the lessons that I've gathered throughout my career and helping to share those with others so that they can learn and grow as well. Carla, thank you so much for sharing your story today on the story behind her success. Thank you so much, Candy. I really enjoyed it. And that's the story behind her success for this week. If you know a woman I should interview for the show, reach out and tell me about her. Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. 
There's also a full library of stories for you to listen to anytime you need a little dose of inspiration. Follow me on Facebook at Candy O'Terry Official and on all other platforms at Candy O'Terry. And whether you're listening on one of our radio affiliates or from your smartphone, we'll have a fresh episode for you next week on the story behind her success. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise.